Hebrews chapter number 2 as we think today about the danger of drifting. Hebrews chapter number 2 beginning with verse number 1. I'll give you a moment to find your place. encourage you to turn in the Bible there or uh, follow along on your device either way so that you're able to interact with uh, the Scripture because we believe it is inspired by God. Uh, it's given to us by inspiration of God, and we believe that it is inerrant in the sense that God gave it to us perfect and complete and uh, intends for it to be the way he uses truth to transform our lives. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And Father, we uh, thank you for the Bible. We thank you that you have given us your spirit, that you've given us truth that's timeless and unchanging. And we pray that you'll use it as an anchor in our life, this hope you've given. God, we pray that it will uh, help us as we continue to stay firm and resolute and uh, committed. We pray, Father, that you'll speak to us by your word now, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Some addictions are referred to by people as forgetting diseases. People drink to excess, make a mess of their life and relationships, but when the remorse wears off, they find themselves right back in the same destructive place, and forgetfulness leads to repetitive, self-defeating behavior. You know, we think about what the scripture says here. Uh, the problem that it's pointing out to us is that sometimes we are forgetful. We forget how great our salvation is. And uh, the Bible is encouraging us here toward not drifting away from the incredible truth that we've uh, discovered in Christ. In the movie The Lion King, you remember The Lion King from a long time ago? We were saturated in The Lion King for years after it came out. But there's a, a part of that story where Simba, who was, uh, you know, witness to his father's tragic death and then lied to about what happened to cause the, the death, goes away and just lives a sort of a carefree life. And at a point, he's interrupted by Rafiki, the baboon, who is in the movie sort of the mystic uh, that shows up to get him back to where he should be. And Rafiki leads him uh, through uh, underbrush and everything to this little pool where he has a sort of a vision of his father. And if you remember, his father shows up in this weird weather phenomenon, and he tells uh, Simba, you've forgotten. You've forgotten me, and so you've forgotten who you are. He says, you don't know who you are anymore. You don't remember. And that's the last word his father, Mufasa, the dead king, leaves with him is remember remember and it echoes with him and you know I think about the fact that there are dangers associated with forgetting what we've heard and drifting away from our identity that our heavenly father wants us to uh, remember which is that identity that God has given to you is deeply intertwined with your purpose and your calling so there's an identity that you have, sons and daughters of God, 
because of what Christ has done, that if we forget and we drift away from that, then we've drifted away from our calling and the purpose that God has for us in our, in our life. So this passage reminds us to remember. It calls us back to remembering and to live out our and fulfill the call that God has for our life. So the first issue, I think, in this passage that we can uh, see is that there's a danger in drift. And understand why it's perilous to just drift. When the scripture says uh, that we must uh, give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard so that we don't drift away, that's the, the uh, idea in this passage. So why is drifting perilous? Well, let me give you another dated movie illustration. I went and saw the movie Castaway with my sister in uh, Statesboro, which to me cemented that Tom Hanks was pretty much one of the greatest actors ever because he turns in about an hour and a half performance with a volleyball right? You remember that? It's like if you never saw the movie, it's not a movie that you should watch on an airplane because it, within a few minutes of the movie beginning, he works for FedEx and he crashes uh, somewhere around Fiji and um, it, it, everybody on the plane is killed except for him and he uh, survives there for years and years on this island and all these things start to flow to shore and he uh, remembers that uh, or within the some of the packages that come ashore is a volleyball, right? He opens it up and he makes friends with this volleyball and basically has conversations with the volleyball. Uh, and once he figures out a plan to leave the island, he's exhausted. He gets past the surf and is uh, out on the ocean and the volleyball who's been his friend, basically, for all this time. He, I think it's just a point of reference for him to express himself and not lose his sanity. But if you remember, the volley, volleyball comes untethered and starts to float away, and he even leaves his safety, the raft, to go out and to try to rescue Wilson, his friend, the volleyball, and eventually Wilson is gone. And I think in the movie it's sort of a way that you see that he's separated out from that isolation and eventually is connected back to civilization and to sanity. But drifting is perilous. When we think about drifting, I thought, you know, he is heartbroken because the volleyball is drifting away. And you feel it. You feel that for him. But when we think about what the Bible says about drifting, it's the opposite of being what Scripture says you should be, which the Bible says be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the Bible says the position that we should be in is that we should be steadfast and immovable, and drifting is exactly the opposite of that. So we're supposed to be steadfast. When we're adrift, we are acted on by forces out of our control rather than being self-controlled. The Bible says that the, what we should be is self-controlled. But when you're adrift, you're acted on by forces. You're not doing the acting. You're the one being acted on by things outside of your control. We lack the stability to be a real help to others who need us. When, if you're adrift, if you're not anchored, and if you're not immovable in your convictions about Christ, which I think is what this passage is trying to say to us, 
then you you aren't helpful to anybody else. Your convictions, you lose your convictions and you're adrift and you're not a resource to other people that need to be helped. So that's why it's important for us not just to be acted on and moved on by the winds and the uh, waves around us that will, will push us around. And we aren't working a plan if we're adrift. We're subject to the whims and uh, possibly our worst impulses. That's the description of a person who's adrift, is that our impulses are acting on us. We're, we're not the one in control. Everything around us is in control of us. And we're unlikely to worship and to witness. And if somebody asked me, what do you think God's purpose for a Christian's life is? Those are the two fundamentals that he intends for you to be a worshiper and a witness. And you may be an introvert and it's hard for you to talk to other people, but your life is telling a story and hopefully your mouth tells that same story. And, and if we're adrift, we're not worshiping and we're not witnessing. And those are... I think two of God's huge calls on our life. We're subject to the forces around us. When we're drifting, we're listless and unengaged. That's the the description of a person adrift. We're listless. We're not passionate. We're apathetic. And and God's call, how could we be apathetic about, that's what he says here, this great salvation. So we're we're called to be grounded and anchored in the faith that we proclaim. We move away from safety if we're adrift. We went on a uh, vacation one time, went tubing at at Pigeon Forge down, I think it was the Pigeon River. So they, they had a bus that when you got to the end, it would pick you up. If you wanted to go again, they'd take you back up and drop you in the river again. We, and uh, that's the farthest thing from something I expected Frankie to find fun. But she wanted to do it more than once, like go down the Pigeon River. And when you got down to the end, you had to get back to the bank, right? And at one point when she was going, she was kind of like, I don't know where she'd ended up if um, she just kept floating down the Pigeon River. <laughs> I don't know where you end up, probably not on the rapids or anything like that. But we had to kind of throw her a milk jug and reel her in, you know. So it's this idea of being adrift is like if, you're, if in your spiritual life you're drifting and not anchored, you're, you're not safe. You're, you're actually away from safety, you're, you're precarious. That's what the idea is here. Why is, it, why is it perilous to be adrift? Because it's not safe. It's not safe just to be drifting away from your spiritual com- uh, commitment. We'll drift farther and farther from our destination. That doesn't mean that, like, if you seriously know Jesus, you're not going to get to heaven. But it's saying that life is more than dying and going to heaven. Your spiritual life is like God has a purpose to use you now. And so a person that's adrift is not going to get to the destination of being able to be used by God in this life right now. It matters too. I'm glad that, you know, the Bible says these things have been written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you have everlasting life. I'm glad that's what the Bible says. But also, the Bible teaches that God has a purpose for your life now in this life. The cradle-to-grave existence, the temporary life that we're living now, God has a purpose for you. And it's not that you just be drifting aimlessly. It's that we're anchored in a conviction about what, what really matters in Jesus. And so when we're adrift, we're detached and unsecured. We drift further and further from our destination. We're uh, helpless. These are all the things that it would feel like to be adrift, untethered, subject to whatever forces come along, offering help. So that's the first thing. Understand why they're drifting is perilous. Secondly, pay attention to the things that you've heard. Secondly, pay attention to the things that you've heard because that's what the passage says here. Therefore, we must pay what? The uh, more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. In other words, act on, live out these uh, the things that we've heard. I uh, was talking probably to Cody a while back about conferences and stuff, but I, it occurred to me before then, I, when I was um, an associational leader, I went to conferences all the time. Some of them were about um, church revitalization, thankfully, and things like that, but about I went to conferences to learn, and at a point I was like, okay, I'm saturated in conferences. I don't know that I need to go to another conference in my life. Maybe I do. But I thought, now, here's what I think at this point in my life is that I'm in the implementation stage. Like, I need to implement. I need to flesh out some of the things that I've, I've learned. It's like, uh, I can't remember who said this, but it's probably somebody like Dennis Swanberg that's really funny, that most of us are educated well beyond our level of obedience. Wouldn't you say that? That most people weigh no, uh, no way more than they're currently doing. What does James say about that? You remember we went through the book of James, and James says, don't be forgetful hearers, but be doers of the word. He says the person that hears but doesn't obey is self-deceived. Deceiving yourself, he says. Don't be forgetful hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. We mature. Here's how people mature. As we act on what we know, as our the things that we would say, have you ever heard people talk about aspirational values? An aspirational value is something you aspire to. You're like, I know this is true. I know this is important. It may or may not be how my life is. My life. Is my life aligned with the values I, I aspire to? If I aspire to be a worshiper, do I worship? Those kinds of uh, ideas. So the Bible says that we have to sometimes require, uh, it requires us to refresh ourselves in truth. I thought about that. Like, do I need, you know, preaching and uh, teaching myself? Yes, of course I do. You know, I need that too. We need to reforce, uh, refresh ourselves in truth and be familiar with who God is. That's key. It keeps us anchored. But I think about the other things that keep me anchored. Honesty keeps me anchored. Alignment, integrity, that keeps me anchored. Being the person that I, I know I, I should be. Listening keeps me anchored. 
the discernment that's available in community. Or those are the kinds of things that can keep a human being anchored. Discernment. The ability to sort out what's true and helpful or what's not in, in our life. And, and a lot of times the place of community is to help us in that very issue. Discipleship isn't just knowing theoretical uh, concepts. It's like we do need to know those concepts. I think about like somebody gave me a book when I was a baby Christian. In fact, one of the first books anybody ever gave me, it was a booklet, it was called Survival Kit for New Christians. I don't know if anybody else ever saw that little piece of uh, literature. It's so helpful. It taught me how to have a quiet time, how to spend time in prayer and scripture. It taught me about my nature. What's my nature like? You know, I became a born-again person. What did it mean to be born again? Was I sinless? Well, no. I figured out pretty quickly that was not what it meant. But it, there, it taught me that I had a, a new nature and that obeying the impulse of that nature as it was informed by the Bible, that was how I was supposed to live. But it, I learned uh, uh, so many good things. But discipleship's not just knowing concepts. It's not just knowing and reading. It, it is internalizing and behaving and acting. And so when we think about paying attention doesn't just mean that like if you heard this message today you could repeat important uh, things that you heard from it. It means after that you went home and you acted on it. You started to implement, make it part of your own experience. I've said this a hundred times, being a disciple is to be an apprentice. And everybody can relate to that concept. Everybody can re relate to going to a job. First job I had was working at Red and White Grocery Store in Augusta. My dad, when I turned 16, said, we live really close to Peach Orchard Road in Augusta. My dad said, go and walk up and down Highway 25. This was like the next day after school ended. And he's like, get a J-O-B. He's like, you're not going to watch TV, y'all. Summer, that was my plan, you know, to do that and play pickup sports. That was, that was my plan. My dad's plan was to get a job, for me to get a job. So I got a job at a grocery store, and I knew nothing. You know, the first thing they try to do in those situations is send you out for a shelf stretcher. Right? Hey, would you uh, go to the corner store and uh, tell them you need a shelf stretcher? And, of course, there is no such thing. That's the joke they play on you because you don't know anything. And, you know, think that an apprentice is somebody who's a learner. Okay, you don't know what you don't know in the beginning. But a, an apprentice is a disciple is somebody who's learning and grabbing onto and then taking that truth and it's becoming what forms the human being that you actually are. So when we're anchored... Uh, and not adrift, we're hearing and paying attention and then fleshing out the truth that we're, we're learning. So part of the learning journey is practicing, putting it in practice, practice what we learn. But thirdly here in this passage we see that uh, when we want to correct this danger of drifting, the way that we do that is given our faith its due seriousness. Give our faith its due seriousness. This is serious. It's the most serious thing. Grave, as the word the Bible sometimes uses, reverent, 
Reverent is dovetailed with the idea of worship in the Bible. Reverence. It's hard for us to describe what that means, but the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, reverence, being serious about what faith means. And so here the scripture says, it gives us this insight for if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and the idea is, and it did, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first be, uh, began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the apostles. So there are two ways that he drives home the idea that the faith that we've received is serious, and the first is by comparing it to the faith that was mediated or protected by angels. It's not the first time he's mentioned angels in Hebrews because we said Hebrews is intended to show us that Jesus is the the, uh, mediator of the new covenant, that Jesus is better that what came before pointed to Jesus, and now Jesus is fulfilling those things. So he's compared Jesus to angels before in Hebrews, and he says Jesus is superior. And he showed us all of the Psalms that point out that very truth, that Jesus is superior to angels because Jesus made the angels. And he's going to keep on that track, but we've seen it before. But the angel that doesn't mean angels are unimportant. In, the, in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, chapter 33, verse 2, is one of the places that people would go to show that the angels, the hosts of heaven, were there when the law was given. And then the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, and Acts 7, 53, the same thing, that angels were involved in the uh, giving of the law present when the law was given at Sinai to Moses. You remember that? That God gave Moses the tablets to give us this moral code, those Ten Commandments that show us God's holiness. That's what they were given for and to give that nation, Israel, a standard to, to say the, there's only one God. And it wasn't just the Mosaic law, but later the uh, their ceremonial law that uh, gave them their order for temple worship. And all along, God is revealing and showing a nation through whom the Messiah would come, what he was like. But it started out with, with this idea that there is a law, he says, and that law given through angels, what does he say about it? He says, it proved steadfast. It's not been repudiated or rescinded. All the things God said about his holiness still are in play. But Jesus came and fulfilled them in his perfect life. Here's the the problem. You and me, you and I do not have a perfect life. Have you ever seen Ray Comfort talk through this stuff? The way of the master? It's good curriculum because what he does is just, and and I stumbled on it just by talking to people, the idea that when you look at the commandments, here's what they uncover is your imperfection and mine because I'm not perfect, but nobody is. And and yet that's not an excuse for us. God doesn't excuse, excuse us because we're not perfect. When I go through the commandments and they say, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, you go, oh, wow. 
If that's God's standard, I have not always remembered to observe a day in which I worship God and I keep that as my priority and I rest in Him. Or if the Bible says, uh, obey your father and your mother. I'm like, well, we were all teenagers, right? So we know that like that one is out of play for us. If, it's, if we're making a list and trying to check it, to say I've done all these things perfectly, don't lie. The scripture says, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Then Jesus says, if you look on a woman to lust after you committed adultery in your heart. You know, so we, we know that as we go through this sampling of ten things God gave us to do. We couldn't do those. We didn't do those. And we don't. And so when he, he shows us, but at the same time, he in this passage says, Every transgression and disobedience receives a just reward or received a just reward. Don't you hope that there's something that makes that different? I mean, that's what it's supposed, you know, showing us is that we have to hope that there's something that makes that different. If all the things God said to us are punishable and there is no exception, we have to hope something made that different, something changed that, or we're all in trouble and, and so he, he's showing us there's a seriousness in this that we need to think about and the book of Romans says it like this now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped what's the purpose of the law the purpose of the law is to shut your mouth about your righteousness your self-righteousness and the whole world will be accountable to God for by the Works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And I love that passage, how there it takes a turn. Romans 3.21 says, uh, says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed, the righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. That may be one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible. God's told us how what a moral wreck we really are. And he, and he says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed. The righteousness, what kind of righteousness is that? The righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of righteousness you need. It's the kind of righteous, righteousness that I need. And so the Bible, I've talked to a lot of people, when you talk to them about sin, often it will, what you'll hear is, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. Like, compared to what, though? <laughs> because the Bible says compared to holy God, that's not a claim that any of us can make. We're all imperfect. We all come short of his glory. And so, thankfully, there is a better way. So, the seriousness we see about the law is still in play, but there is another kind of seriousness that is implied here about Jesus or, or stated. So, it says in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's saying the, uh, the part about the law, it was great. It was, it was It's timeless. Uh, everything God said to Moses was true. And it, but he, he says now, if that was great, it, how great is the salvation that came? How serious ought we to be about, about that, about the salvation that Jesus has provided? And there, there's, 
he says, what, what are we left with if we reject that salvation, if we don't stay anchored by that truth, if we opt to captain our own ship? That's what a lot of people want to do. We want to be the captain of our own ship. But Jesus came not only as a messenger. The word angel means messenger. That's what an angel was. It was a messenger, dispatched to say what God told them to say. That's what they did. And we read already that it says angels were uh, moved on winds like messengers of fire. So they were passionate to deliver the message that God said should be given. And we see how they show up and they speak what God says and nothing else. The obedient angels. And yet, when we, we see this passage, even more serious is the reality that God himself came here not only as a messenger, but as our salvation in entirety. He, Jesus was our entire salvation. When uh, the angels appear and they speak to Joseph and to Mary about who Jesus is, they say his name will be called Jesus, which means God's salvation. Or Yahweh's salvation. That's what Jesus it meant. Jehovah, which is like a hybrid word of uh, the those consonants that were used, which some people you know wouldn't even speak. Y H W H is the way they come to us in English, and we get we say Yahweh, but really they don't know you know what the word even was. They just knew that it was the most serious word because it was a it was God, but about Jesus, the angel said, call his name Jesus, God's salvation, Jehovah's salvation. And also they said his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. So God came to be here and to live here, and, and God came to be our Savior. And, and he says, that's serious. You want to know how to prevent yourself from drifting away? Right? Retain in your heart, a seriousness about what that what that means. Then also keep current in the greatness of salvation, fourthly here in verse 3. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What makes it great? What's, what makes the salvation great in the way it's described? It's attested by Jesus. He says about himself, I'm the Savior of the world. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's great because it's freely offered. Isn't that good news? It's freely offered. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God and not of works, so that no one can, can boast. Titus 3.5, not of uh, works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration the renewing of the holy spirit it's a gift that's freely offered i was thinking about the song we always used to sing freely freely we've received freely freely give it's a good offertory uh hymn from the old days but it it it's great because it's a free offer it's great because it assures us of having our sins forgiven and a home with god let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's home are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And he says, I go and prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you remember Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. It's great because it assures us of the forgiveness of our sins and a home with God. It's great because it was offered out of God's self-giving love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I hope we never get tired of hearing that. John 3.16. It's great because it's attested by the prophets and by the apostles and uh, and their witness. It's great because it snatches us from hell. Jude chapter 1 verse 23 says, save some as if you're snatching them out of the uh, very fire of hell. It's great because it rescues us from torment and hell. It's a great salvation because it is uh, it helps us to have a, a faith with God that goes beyond the veil is the way it puts it. It gives us access to God by faith that goes beyond. Uh, the, you remember in the narrative in the gospel that when Jesus died on the cross, when it was certain that he was dead, what happened in the temple? It says the veil of the temple was rent into from top to bottom and a way was provided, access into the holiest that God gave us through Christ. It's great because it did that. It gave you access to God. It's great because it places us in the family of God, but as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. That's why it's great, because it puts you in his family through faith. This salvation is great because it made sure that your sin debt was paid even though you had no ability to repay it. Uh, Matthew 18, 25 tells us that a uh, great story about someone who ha had a debt that he, he, it was so enormous he could never repay it. And in that we see a picture of the gospel. We owe a debt we can't pay. God paid for us. It's a great salvation because it opens the door for his spirit to live inside of us. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, the scripture says, I will come to him and make my home in him. Isn't that good news? Romans 8, chapter nine, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, if we, uh, we don't have the spirit, we're none of his. We don't belong to him if the spirit hasn't come to live inside of us. This, is, this salvation is great because it takes a dead person. This is such an incredible mystery. How does it work? I don't know. I wish I could explain it. I can't explain it. But I do know that the Bible says that you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he has made alive. Took an old dead person, dead in their sins, put life inside of us by his spirit. That's what those passages teach us. That's why it's a great salvation because of what it does. It's great because it transforms and redirects people. But this is in uh, the book of Acts when the apostles were preaching. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is what God does in salvation. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ promised for you. That's what the apostles preached. They said, that God redirects, God transforms and changes the lives of people. 
And, and it happens when we repent. And it's great because it disrupts us on our way to dis- destruction. The scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's why this salvation is called great in this passage. And then when we think about how do we interrupt drift in our life, don't become cynical about the miraculous. That's the last thing in this passage. Because it says here that the gospel was confirmed by miracles. So when Jesus was here, what would you expect to happen if God came and walked the earth? All the things that happened when God came and walked the earth. When we read the gospels, we see that Jesus his heart is broken for the brokenness around him. We see that at times Jesus healed people. We see that Jesus raised people from the dead. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He raised a little girl from the dead. He, Because he's over the natural order, he's able to supersede and interrupt and change it because he created it. So... And if his purpose is to make everything new, that's what we would expect to see, and it is what we see. We saw miracles. And then what happened with the disciples? The disciples themselves were able to perform at times miracles as a confirming evidence of the gospel. And so that's what the scripture says here about why our faith should be grounded is because God did everything you would expect for him to do Can I prove to you that those things happen? I can only say that the people who wrote this down, all of them for everything that we read in the New Testament were eyewitnesses to these things and this is what they said. They lived it, they experienced it, and now 2,000 years later we're, we're still talking about it. So it had that powerful impact on them that we know that most of them became martyrs rather than deny their faith in Christ. So our uh, the remedy that we see in the scripture for drifting is having a clear sense of identity and uh, worth to God. God said that you had worth, that I had worth. That's why he gave his life for us because your life has value to God and he wanted it to be redeemed but also we know that God himself is worthy that's what the psalm writer says great is the Lord and greatly to be praised he's worthy and that helps us to keep our life centered in who he is and we uh, find in the scripture that the when we think about who he is and, and us as worshipers there's a better way to live than listlessly being pushed around by forces around us that move us further and further away from safety and from his purpose for you in Christ. God is calling us to lives of attentive purpose and alert engagement so that we aren't wrecked on the rocks. Too many times we see that. If you live long enough, you'll see that. People whose lives got wrecked on the rocks. People who didn't stay out of the rapids. People who went over the edge or were lost at sea. You know, in a in a um, visual kind of way of thinking about what this means. People who ended up drowned in despair. If we listen and permit him to do so, Christ will keep us anchored and grateful worship is a stead, steadying force that 
arrest drift. And so as we have a time of commitment today, maybe that's the problem you would say as I listen to that. I think of myself and what's happening with me and it, I'm adrift. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the scripture. Thank you for the greatness and the salvation that you've made available to people like us, undeserving and yet worth it. That's what you said. And I pray today, God, that you help us as we think about our life. We'll evaluate where are we? Are we caught up in a stream? Are we acted on by forces? Or are we uh, surrendering to you? God, are we dropping down our anchor into the steadfastness that you provide? And so we pray for your help now. And I pray, Father, if there's a need in our life to repent, to say that life is not the life I want, that we'll be willing to repent and turn to you and give you everything and, and do it again day by day. Keep surrendering to you. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? for this time. If there's a need that you have to pray, I'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, that's what this